open up and I want to play a little game with you this morning. You know, who's ready for a game? Sweet. All right, so here's how this is going to work. I'm going to play a clip of a song. I'm even going to put the name of the song and the artist up on the, the, the board behind me. I need you to tell me what the song is about as succinctly as possible, in a, in, in Lord willing, in one word, right? So we're going to play a game. Y'all ready? All right, and I just need you to yell it out. Don't raise your hand like, you know, just we're fighting over it. Jesus is probably not the answer to it uh, this morning, just to be honest. All right, here's song one. Here we go. Say it. Deceit? Really? Anybody else? Drums? What else we got? Death? Murder? Love? Okay. Revenge? Man, that's good. All right, next. Here we go. Let it go. Life? Peace? Prayer? The Beatles pray? Sorry. What else? Anybody? Surrender. Drugs? Nobody? Okay, next. Here we go. Which, by the way, what would you say? Overrated. That's great. You got to be kidding. You know, anyway. <laughs> What are we shaking off? Drama, breakups, hate, the haters. All right, last one. Love. Who was alive when this song came out? Some of you don't have your hands up. That's amazing. Wow. Anyway, other, you got anything other than love? 13-year-old romance. All right, here's the deal. The, each one of the songs had something in common, and the thing they had in common was the word it. Every single one of those songs had it, and, and the word that they were using there was describing something so much bigger than itself. It means so much more than just those two letters, right? If you're a college football fan, what is the SEC's slogan? It just means more, which maybe not this year. But anyway, what is it? What is it pointing to that it, it just means so much more than the word itself? Today, we're going to dive into uh, what I would say is probably one of the hardest scriptures in the Bible to certainly preach, but maybe to even understand in its entirety. The text that we're looking at today is called the Transfiguration, and it is a moment in history where Jesus reveals himself and all of his glory to three disciples. And the reason the text is so hard, in my opinion, is because we have to answer really the centrality of one question. Why? Why did Jesus do this? Why, and maybe even deeper to get to us today is why does this text, why does this transfiguration moment where Jesus somehow is changed and there's this glory picture, why does it matter today? Like what does it do for your life? The title of my sermon, if you're taking notes and following along with us, is The Glory That Defines. The Glory That Defines. So what I want to do is I just kind of want to walk through 
those verses of this text really quickly and try to unpack and see what God is pointing to and what we can bring about from his words today. Verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Let's stop there. So a couple of key things first. The first couple of words he says, now about eight days after these sayings. So what Luke is doing in this passage is he's connecting this moment of transfiguration with the previous moments that he has already written about. Specifically, the ones where Jesus is telling someone or someone is saying about him who he is. This is kind of all in a thematic approach for Luke where he's trying to describe to the person reading this, this gospel narrative who exactly is Jesus. And so he begins by saying, hey, now after eight days, these things were said. These things happened. He's connecting all of that together. Now, some theologians have gone in to read, what is this eight days? Is it significant? Because if you go through the Old Testament, you'll know that, you know, Jews had an eight-day period before they circumcised their children. And you can go down that route and try to, you know, make some sort of symbolic connection. But I don't really believe that that's the important moment here. What I think is important is Luke is connecting this magnificent picture of transfiguration to the identity of the Son of God. And so he continues, and then he gives us more connection by saying Peter and John and James went up to the mountain with Jesus. And so what, what was happening is Jesus takes this inner circle of people with him to this majestic event. And so there's a couple of things that we can glean from this teaching, and I think the first one is this, that circles are better than rows circles are better than rows. We've taught it for years. You may have heard it from other churches. You may have heard it in a various number of places. What we mean by that is we 100% value and believe that Sunday morning church gatherings matter, right? If we didn't, we could all just leave right now. But we know that this is important, what we do. The proclamation of God's word through teaching, through singing, it matters, but what we have seen in the teaching of Jesus and in his disciples is that discipleship, the nitty gritty of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, really happens deeply when we're in circles, not necessarily when we're in rows, meaning when we're in groups. For us, groups looks like what we call this thing called missional communities. And what I love what Jesus does here is he shows us a layer of one of our missional communities. So if you don't know what a missional community is, it's essentially groups for us. So we have a couple of different facets that go on there. The first one's like a family gathering. In our MCs, we meet regularly. We talk about the Bible. We talk about each other's lives. We pray. We, we open up to each other as a family. That's what's called the family gathering. But then the second kind of tier of that is what we call DNA, Discover, Nurture, Act. And it's really like an accountability group. So inside of our MC, what we want to do is get three or four people who are in the same gender in, in, in our MC and start diving deeper into things in life. And what you see Jesus doing right here is that same exact thing. 
Jesus pulls these three men aside and says, hey, come see this. It's not that the other nine aren't important. It's that Jesus wants to show them something. Jesus wants to walk deeper with them. And what we should learn is if we think we can walk deep with 10, 15, 20 people, the Son of God shows us a little different picture, right? I mean, this is a guy who is discipling 12. How many of you have discipled 12 people at the same time? Not a lot of hands, right? And here is the Son of God coming in front of us saying, I, I can disciple all 12 of these. I mean, I, I'm going to lose one in that, right? But I'm going to pour deeply into even three more. I'm going to put some emphasis on these three. And so when we talk about being a family of servant missionaries, we even inside of that have these like little subsets. And we really deeply want to see people get discipled. And so if I want to encourage you. If you come and sit on a row and you're not in a circle in our church, I would strongly encourage you to do that because I believe that a circle will help you walk with Jesus better. I, I believe that when you get into a circle with people who really desire to see Jesus and desire to see you look more like Jesus, it will be a great benefit to your life. And so if you, you come and you sit with us on a row on a Sunday morning, I appreciate you and I value you. I believe that you would get so much more out of a circle in addition to the row. And that's the first thing that we can kind of see that Jesus pulls this inner circle of people away to show them something specific. The next thing that we see is what did he do? He shows them prayer. Luke is unpacking right here in these first two verses. He mentions prayer three different times. And what he's doing is he's highlighting and he's emphasizing the importance of prayer in our lives. And I want to do that for you. I want to ask that question. Where is prayer in your life? Would you say that it's a central spiritual discipline? How are you fostering a better prayer life? Look, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that if you begin to have a prayer life and you begin to have one that is just amazing that all of a sudden you're going to see Jesus in transfigured in your living room. I'm not saying that. Here's what I will say. The more we come to him in prayer, the more we humble ourselves and seek his face, the more glorious he does appear. The more he shows up in moments when I never expected to see him, all of a sudden, maybe it's because my heart is humbled and because I'm in a different posture spiritually, but I see him more clearly than I ever saw him before. And so what prayer can do for you is it can put you in the right space of mind. It can put you in the right heart to begin to not only see God more clearly, but to see the hurt around you and be deeply burdened for it. All of us desire to see the majesty and the wonder of God, but how many of us are making room in our lives for him to show up and show us his majestic nature? Or are we just hoping that somehow he takes over our Netflix account and he pops up on our screen while we're binge watching whatever, right? We create spaces for the things in our life that matter. Are we creating space for God? And that is what is modeled here from the disciples. They're creating space. And in so many ways, that's what prayer is. It's just creating a space for him to show up. I promise you this, that if you'll begin to commit to prayer, that you will begin to see life differently. 
you will begin to see the glorious nature of Jesus in the everyday small things. Even in the fights, even in the struggles, there is a picture of the glory of God that will come present if you'll just begin to carve a little bit of your life, a little bit of your time every day out in prayer. Let's continue on. Verse 29. So Peter, John, and James are up on the mountain praying. Verse 29, it says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face, talking about Jesus, was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So, Moses and Elijah appear in glory. And this is a pivotal moment in the Jewish reader's mind. So what's happening here is in Jewish tradition, the prophets of old, the prophets of the Old Testament held a very high place of esteem. So much so that they were, they were almost deified. They were like little G God-like. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, these prophets and these old faith leaders held a high place of esteem. There were, there were prayers said, not necessarily to them, but certainly about them and characteristics of their lives trying to lived out by the rabbis of the day and the local leaders of the day. And as these people were lifted up, in some, t- in some way, shape, or form, Yahweh was kind of brought down in the thought process. That's an Old Testament name for God, in case you weren't familiar. But what happens here in this moment, as Jesus appears with them, with Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament prophets and leaders, and as they begin to discuss what Jesus is going to accomplish, what is happening is God is affirming to these disciples He's affirming to these three people that Jesus is the Messiah that he claims to be, and he is greater than any Old Testament prophet. He is the Son of God. He is this Messiah. His glory is now revealed, which leads us to our key question. What is glory? And what does it mean to appear in glory. So I think glory in some ways is kind of a tough word. If someone was to walk up to you and say, hey, define glory, many of us would kind of do the the thought uh, face, like, hmm, right? We'd stand there for a few moments, and we might struggle to come up with a clear definition of exactly what glory is. It kind of, if, if we're honest, glory sort of feels like a church word and really just kind of limited to that place. But if we know anything about the word glory, it isn't just a church word. Watch, watch these clips really quickly where glory is used in several places. Fun fact, Georgia and Auburn have the exact same song. I don't know if y'all noticed that. They just obviously changed like one word. But anyway, uh, we use glory in all sorts of places. But, but what does it mean? Well, let's go back to the original language. So uh, in the Bible, you, you primarily have Hebrew and Greek. There's a little bit of Aramaic, but Hebrew and Greek are our two primary languages written in the original text of the Bible. In Hebrew, the word kavod 
is what is the word what we get glory and it's mentioned 189 times while in Greek you have the word doxa which is mentioned 148 times so we have a good understanding biblically what glory is and so glory in the scriptures really means kind of this weighty heavy honorable thing it, it, it kind of points to prominence beyond our words Glory uh, has this idea that the nature of who you are or what you did is so magnificent that it brings about a radiant essence of your being or your action. Glory points to something greater, kind of like our opening illustration. The word it in each one of those songs referred to something greater than itself, and the word glory refers to something more grand than can ever be said in language. And this is our picture. This is our starting point. So when Jesus displays his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, we are seeing a picture that if we're quite honest, I'm not 100% sure that we can completely grasp through words. But let's see another picture of glory. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, before he's about to be arrested in the garden, John 17, uses this word glory several, several times. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may then glorify you. Since you, have been, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice that the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In this sense, what we see, Jesus is using glory as a word to describe the outcomes of his actions, of the sacrifice that is to come, of the payment that he's already paid in serving the Lord so far on the earth. He has done what the Father has asked, and in doing so, he then brought glory to the Father. And Jesus is asking for glorification once again. And I want us to even lean in on the Christmas story and how it reveals that Jesus set aside his glory for just a moment by coming in the form of a child. Look to Paul's letter in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, church in Philippi, says this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he did what? He emptied himself. He removed the glory by coming and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus comes as a baby. The invisible God becomes visible. The invisible glory now takes on form in which we don't give glory to him at first, but through the actions of his life, living in perfection, dying on a cross, a dying a death that he did not deserve for you and for me, he then receives this idea, this picture, this weightiness, this kavod, this glory. He empties himself. He was fully God and fully man. The glory of God is likely far beyond our comprehension. But what can be displayed about glory is this anthropomorphized picture that Luke puts in this transfiguration text before us. He puts this picture, this understanding that we can have of glimmer and shine and yet somehow magnificently majestic before us. His glory is bigger than our words. The grand picture of Jesus dazzling in front of these disciples. But why? Like, what is the purpose of the glory of God? You hear churches say this, right? For the city for the glory of God. Many churches use that as a mission statement or a slogan. But what is this doxa? What is this kavod? What is this weighty thing? And what does it have to do with your life today? Why does it matter? Peter sees this moment. Luke 9, 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Keep in mind the context of what's happening in this transfiguration moment. It's to define the purpose of the Messiah, to define who he is to the disciples, which means if that's the initial purpose for them to understand who Jesus is, it is also then our purpose. We go to this transfiguration text and we go, what is the purpose of it for today? When you're wondering how grand, how big, how glorious, how majestic your Lord is, you can look at this picture and know that there is something that is to be unknown about him. That's how big he is. If this was a Louis Giglio sermon, I don't know if y'all know him, but he's a Passion City pastor, I would have some sort of thing about the cosmos and stars because that's how big it is. We don't even understand it. There's universes upon universes upon universes, and it's this big, glorious, grand picture but there's something even more practical about it than just, wow, it's so big and glorious. He lays out this description. Peter, John, and James see this. They're praying. And this moment changes everything. Peter writes about it later in his second epistle. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Think about that, right? There are all sorts of little g gods and religions floating around both then and now. 
And Peter is writing to the dispersion, the people who are dispersed amongst all of the lands. And he's saying, do you know why you can trust me? Because I am witness to something majestic. And I didn't just get this from simply just following some tablets or some pieces of paper. I both saw the majestic Messiah. I walked with him. I saw something dead come to life. And this is the picture. We did not cleverly devise myths when we made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This moment of glory was on display to shine for the followers who were to come. The transfiguration is a glorious display shining for you to see who Jesus is. Can you fully understand it? Probably not today. One day it will be a majestic picture, a picture beyond words of how holy and grand our Lord is. It exists now to give you a glimmer, a picture, a small glimpse so that you can let the world know because God's glory defines your life. That is where you find meaning. Rick Warren wrote a book, The Purpose Driven Life. And you can go through it and you can do all the things, but you know what it really sums up to if you go through this New York Times bestseller, 20 bajillion copies sold? That's not a real word, by the way. I know some of you, I saw some of your faces, you're like, is that, let me Google that. Here's the thing, you could sum it all up. When you are most satisfied in him, he is most glorified in you. That's what Rick Warren's book sums up to. Another pastor, John Piper, quoted that multiple times. When we go through the scriptures over and over and over again, the purpose of our life is to become less so that he can become more. And that might sound like you're giving something up, but you're gaining something more than you could ever understand. So when we look out in the world, we should see the grandness of who he is. When you look into the eyes of a loved one, you should see the creator's mark on them. When you see the wonders of the hills and the valleys of his creation, know that he formed them. When you stare into the heavens, give authority to the one who hung the stars. The universe itself is a grand cathedral, and every star declares the glory of God in silent celestial hymns. Jesus revealed himself to them, to those disciples in that moment, and to you and I, so that we could take his lamp and shine it in the dark places. And the question for you this morning is, will you answer 
the call. We went to Jesus' high priestly prayer, the first part. This second part, verse 22, is where he brings you into this glory call. John 17, verse 22. It says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What Jesus is saying here is that God's glory gives meaning to your life. God's glory defines. J.I. Packer says this. Our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God to the glory of God. Will you answer the call? Will you be in relationships? with people, not just for the betterment of them or the betterment of you, but for the glory of God. When you go to work and you do that mundane task, will you give it full effort? As Paul writes to the church in Colossians and says, do all things unto the Lord. Will you do it for the glory of God? When your kids get out of hand, Will you parent them to the glory of God? When sin is creeping in your life and you realize that it's come up and it's bubbling there and that stronghold or that addiction or that thought or whatever it is, is right there, will you recognize that it is present? Will you repent and give glory to God? So you're not going to reach perfection this side of heaven. But you can always reach for Jesus. He's already reached for you. Will you just stick your hand out and answer the call and give glory to God? Let me pray. Lord, I ask that as we dive into a text that presents a picture that I'm not sure that words can can fully paint. And we ponder on what it means to give you glory and to to do unto the Lord and to have a, a marriage that edifies and builds up the church and to have a parenting method or parent in a way that brings glory to the Lord or have relationships with friends that bring you glory Uh, As we drive in our city and we obey traffic laws, can we drive in a way that brings you glory? And Lord, when we are lost in the moment, will you remind us of your glory so that we can repent? We can turn from the 
temptations, the struggles, the sin that we find ourselves so easily entangled in. God, will you slow our pace in this Christmas season to take your light like a lampstand and shine it in the dark places. If there's anyone in earshot this morning that has never surrendered their life to him, has never recognized that they're in the darkness and they want to be shown the light of Jesus, God, I just pray that they'd come forward. The altar's open. Leaders in the room. God, we want to give you all the glory this morning because you are great and you are good. It's in your son's name I pray. And God's people said.